Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama these aren't illegal immigrants. Uh, 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 Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. You know what it is? My new slogan, 2020. Keep America great. Hello, I'm Drew Sheldrick. Welcome back to another episode of 2020 Vision. The US presidential election campaign has officially kicked off this week, with President Trump launching his bid for a second term at a rally in Florida. We've got the CEO of the United States Study Centre here to talk us through that big event, as well as a preview of the first of the Democratic presidential debates next week. First, let's hear from what the president had to say at his campaign launch on Tuesday. Together we stared down a corrupt and broken political establishment and we restored government of, by, and for the people. Our economy is the envy of the world, perhaps the greatest economy we've had in the history of our country. That is a lot of fake news back there. That's a lot. A hoax, a great hoax. We did, in the middle of the great and illegal witch hunt, things that nobody has been able to accomplish, not even close. Nobody's done what we have done in two and a half years. Virtually every top Democrat also now supports taxpayer-funded abortion right up to the moment of birth. Ripping babies straight from the mother's womb. We would drain the swamp, no collusion, no obstruction. Crooked Hillary Justice Kavanaugh, highly respected. Our radical Democrat opponents are driven by hatred, prejudice, and rage. They want to destroy you, and they want to destroy our country. Is it going to be Make America Great Again, which is probably and possibly the greatest theme in the history of politics, I think. You know, there's a new one that really works, and that's called Keep America Great, right? Keep America Great. Professor Simon Jackman, welcome back to the podcast. Good to be with you. Uh, was there anything new that Trump was offering in Orlando this week? It, was, it seemed sort of pretty classic Trump. Uh, he seemed energised. There was lots of interaction with the crowd, a lot of familiar themes. So, so is he going to stick with that or is he going to offer voters something new in 2020? He's offering the fact that he's the incumbent and as opposed to 2016. And he's also offering his record, uh, a pretty healthy economy for the time being, and tangible evidence uh, that he is indeed making America great again, and he will point to the economic record as as evidence of that. And the other thing I heard in the in the speech is the Mars mission, you know, other other signifiers of American greatness under his watch. And so he'll be pointing to that. And in and in so doing, Drew, doing the things that incumbent presidents do when they run for re-election. Um, it is still Donald Trump, still very unconventional, but um, pointing to your legacy, particularly with respect to your record, particularly with respect to the economy, that is straight out of the re-election playbook. And I heard Trump uh, talking to that pretty pretty loud and clear. Is this early to launch a, a presidential re-election bid? Uh, obviously, the Democrats are already fighting it out in the, in the primary contest. 18 months prior to an election seems quite early for a president to be hitting the hustings. Yeah, and look, the, the Dems are out early. 
Uh, and so I, he, he's probably decided uh, let's let's also get out there on the front foot. But to some extent, he's never really stopped uh, campaigning. Um, he filed paperwork uh, for his re-election bid literally the day of his inauguration or the following day uh, so he could fundraise and, and keep that activity alive and legal. Um, but it's been a touchstone of his presidency to be out there on the hustings if not every weekend, every other weekend, a rally perhaps not as big as the 20,000-person event uh, we saw uh, this week, but um, but he has done, you know, 5,000, 8,000-person rallies uh, um, regularly throughout his presidency and in Florida and other key states in the South and some of the upper Midwest states. He's never stopped going back to the base from the get-go. To some extent, this speech was sort of a longer-form version, to some extent, of the speech you will see him give regularly, other than the magic words, and I'm running for re-election. Uh, he's, been, he's been doing that from the get-go. Yeah, well, we heard the new campaign slogan, Keep, Keep America Great, uh, months or even a year ago. So, it's right. you know, it, it seems to be something that he relishes most about the presidency, this, this, this campaigning, this, this speaking to his base, surely that is what he finds most attractive about this role. It certainly seems that way. There are two pieces to this. One is uh, sort of the more, you know, uh, uh, rallies as therapy for the commander in chief. And I think that the senior White House staff may be engaging in a little bit of that, um, get the president away from the, the pressure of the White House yeah, and, and the criticism and, and all of that and the Mueller investigation and all the heat around that, getting back out in his comfort zone and that is ad-libbing it in front of his people, a friendly crowd, number one. But number two, Trump's presidency... Um, he comes to office elected with a, with not a majority of the popular vote. Remember, he, he he wins the electoral college but loses the election. His grip on power, to some extent, has been a little tenuous electorally. He understands he's got to pull off that trick again if he is to be re-elected. And number two on the political side of this is that keeping the base revved up and and joined to him emotionally like that is his. Uh, bulwark against impeachment. Because as long as Republican senators look at his approval number among the Republican base and see it beginning with an eight or a nine, um, impeachment or impeachment, but removal from office through a conviction in the Senate um, is just not ever going to happen. And it gives him the ability to bat away Mueller and all of those allegations uh, as fake news, no obstruction, no collusion. The base will sort of accept that. And he is out there constantly uh, revving them up and reminding them of why they voted for him. And I think it's served not only that therapeutic purpose, but also a very pragmatic and a very important political purpose for Donald Trump. The first of the presidential debates for the Democrats kick off next week, also in Florida, this time in Miami. Uh, there are 20 candidates facing off over two nights uh, with about five different moderators, I think. Uh, that's going to be a circus, isn't it? A primary vote is actually going to get a good picture of any of the candidates with that kind of setup. Uh, it's tricky, isn't it? Um, uh, there's round one and there's round two. And um, did you make round one or did you make round two? And and um, is is part of the of the game at the moment. But um, I think the other thing about this will be keep your eye out for people who are sort of perhaps got your question in mind, and that is looking for a you know connect moment. That that brief moment when you, you may only have fifteen to thirty seconds. But can you connect? Can you put something out there early to separate yourself from this big pack? 
And and so that's what I'll be looking for with the debates, plural, uh, in Miami um, next week. But it's very early still. There will be opportunities. And like, just cast your mind back to uh, the primaries that we've seen in the last couple of presidential cycles where you have these little boomlets. And we've already seen them this time around. Beto O'Rourke, he's on the cover of Vanity Fair. And then six weeks later, everybody goes, oh, now we're on to someone else. And expect that kind of dynamic. There'll be the candidate of the week, sort of, or the fortnight. Um, and, and so watch that and how it interacts with the debate schedule. But um, right now, this is far from settled. Um, I'm, I'm very keen to see what messages... Um, various candidates will come up to try and distinguish themselves from the pack. So the answer to your question is actually I do think the attentive American primary voter will get to see a fair amount of these candidates and will be in a position to make, I think, an intelligent choice about the messages that they're hearing um, and and who who to cast their lot in with. Uh, Certainly that seems to be the case perhaps with the first debate, just looking at the the lineup. I think Elizabeth Warren is the only one in the first debate um, uh, that uh, is the front runner, or would you say who is a front runner in the race? There's a lot of unknowns in there. Whereas with the second debate, you've got uh, Buttigieg, you've got um, Biden, you've got Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, that's going to be hellish with all those front runners in the the, second debate. That's right. And some people say it actually maybe gives Elizabeth Warren a little bit of advantage that she's uh, got a bit more clear air, as it were. Um, But the second one um, will be really interesting. People will be looking to take the shine off Joe Biden. He's he's, he's a long way ahead in the polls. A lot of that is name recognition. And that's the point. This is this opportunity now to fill in the blank. Oh, yeah, I recognize the name. He was Obama's vice president. But what do you really know about him? And, and, And the other candidates will be, this is my opportunity to take him down or to yeah. highlight a weakness. And and a lot of eyes will be on Biden. It's the front runner's race to lose to some extent. And is Biden got it? Uh, the age question will be on a lot. How does he perform in that moment, given that he's been off stage for a couple of years? So far, a lot of the Democratic hopefuls seem to have been hesitant to be overtly critical of a lot of, a lot of the candidates. Um, certainly, there's been some veiled criticism of some of um, Biden's um, previous sort of policy positions. It, it will get a, a little more vicious during these debates. You'll see people attacking sort of people personally. Yeah, yeah, that's inevitable. I think just given how crowded the field is, um, inevitably that will probably happen. The, the only you know, argument against that, I think, Drew, would be if there's one thing they can agree on, it's the importance of defeating Donald Trump yeah. and, and how odious a character Trump is to, to the Democrats. And, and, and you know, I think you know, there will be a countervailing appeal to let's not lose focus of the main game here sort of argument yeah. and trying to put sort of the personal stuff that inevitably could come up, uh, trying to, you know, it's just such a crowded field, the idea that they can keep it civil and all focused on message about about defeating Trump. That will be what they come back to, perhaps to kiss and make up after, after they have um, uh, some ructions on the way through. Uh, if I can turn to a completely different issue, uh, overnight acting US Defence Secretary Patrick Shanahan withdrew from the confirmation process following a report in the Washington Post uh, detailing some quite disturbing allegations about uh, the treatment of his ex-wife. Uh, we can get distracted into the, the sort of day-to-day politics of, of the US, but certainly in the Trump era. But it is remarkable, isn't it, that, that, that when you think of how many senior positions have remained unfilled or unconfirmed in the Trump administration, and we're already going into a, another election. Yeah, yeah, no. And it's disappointing about, um, about Shanahan in particular. It's a, it's a really big job. 
and uh, particularly here in Australia, uh, the defence uh, portfolio in the United States incredibly important in the in the bilateral relationship we have with the United States, and um, a lot of people here sad to see. Uh, Jim Mattis depart. So this particular one, but your bigger point is absolutely right. And again, a, a source of great concern for Canberra and uh, and and more broadly uh, in Australia among those of us who are tracking the US and the Australia-US relationship and America's ability to do business around the world. Um, the, these appointments remaining unfilled uh, is, is a real drag on uh, the ability of the United States to project presence in the world at a time when that's exactly what allies like Australia are looking um, for the United States to do. Um, Shanahan in particular was at Shangri-La just, uh, what was it? It's about 10 days ago. Yeah, the Shangri-La dialogue. Yeah, it gave an incredibly important speech, right? And a speech that was actually, for the most part, I think, pretty well received by the allies. Um, uh, seven to eight out of ten, perhaps. Um, but um, but now he's gone, and and people are beginning to wonder. Particularly, again, I'll just come back to the defence uh, stack. Something you know, as you well you know, inside the U.S. Study Center, something we pay an awful lot of attention to. The the authors now, the turnover and the vacancies mean the authors of the National Defence Strategy. An incredibly important document from the perspective of a close ally like Australia. The authors of that document are all gone. Uh, and so who is going to implement um, the Asia policy? Who is going to make sure that the sentiments and the, the substantive thrust of the NDS, uh, a bigger presence for the United States in this part of the world in particular, can allies be confident that the grown-up adults in the room are there to see it through. Um, oh, you know, and that's sort of what Jim Mattis did, that sort of reassurance to allies. And so defence in particular, but a similar sentiment would, would hold certainly inside the United States with respect to the administration. But the thing we're really focused on here from this distance is, is particularly in portfolios like defence, to some extent in state and ambassadorships and and, uh, and and those sorts of external focused appointments. We had uh, Dr. Sean Ratcliffe on the podcast a few weeks ago talking about polling and trust in pollsters. I just wanted to get your thoughts on one of the questions that uh, I asked him, uh, given your extensive background in uh, statistics and public opinion. Do you think people going into 2020 are going to pay any attention to the polls after the hard lessons that we've learned, putting faith in them around national elections in, in recent years? The polls have taken a real hit reputationally, no doubt about it. That said, I think until we get down to small differences, I think the polls are still going to carry a lot of weight. If for no other reason, then we've got nothing else to go by. And for instance, you know, all this sort of handicapping um, among the Democratic field, when you've got Biden by double-digit leads, you know, 30s versus teens for the nearest Democratic uh, candidate, those sorts of differences you can believe and, um, and, and as it were, take to the bank. But I think what's going to get really interesting is in the general election contest, particularly in the swing states where the polls were wrong, um, what is it that the polling industry is going to do differently? Uh, are there bigger samples or uh, some sort of social media component or something? But that, for me, as someone that pays an awful lot of attention to this, it's general election polling in those swing states where we really did get led astray last time. That's where um, I think, A, there will be a lot of scepticism and B, a lot of scrutiny as to what it is that the polling industry might do differently this time to earn back 
that confidence. In the last few weeks, we've also seen uh, types of polling, uh, sort of head-to-head polling, so showing where Democratic candidates are, are, are positioned against Trump. Do you find that that kind of polling is going to be useful at the moment? I mean, can we really get an idea of how these individual Democratic candidates are going in a face-to-face contest with the president at this stage? Yeah, yeah look, I, 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 there is some value to that polling because ultimately uh, electability is a big concern. That said, it's rather speculative this early out until because what's going to happen is what we were talking about earlier is that the Democrats will will uh, take a lot of shots at one another and and what happens to those head-to-head numbers as, as the process continues. What's interesting about them is you get a sense of the relativities, um, who is most viable against Trump. But for that reason, they don't do a lot of that polling in the United States early in a president's term, Trump versus an unnamed Democrat. I mean, you can do that, but you've got to start putting another candidate. And then it starts to get a little meaningful. We are still so far out, though, that you know it, that's the sort of polling I'd be paying more attention to. Sort of where are we? I'd say about eight months from now, as we get into the pointy end of the Democratic primary season, sort of March, April of next year. Simon, thanks very much for joining us today. My pleasure, Drew. Thank you. Thanks this week to the Bubblemara Brass Band, Sick Riot and Ketza for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance.